and let's begin in verse 15. We'll say we're reaching the end of the chapter, but that stand and we'll read chapter 1. And we'll start in verse, well, verse 13. Somewhere in here, I'm trying to save a little time. Let's read, let's start reading in Let's just start reading verse 15. We're going to go through it all anyway. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Of course, Naomi is encouraging Ruth and Orpah to go back to Moab. But notice she says to the gods, not just your people, but your gods. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more, if anything but death parts me of you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant, but Mara, which means bitter, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. <clears throat> I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. <clears throat> Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. But they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. All right, last time, a couple weeks ago, we as we uh, started to look uh, at the uh, text of Ruth, we saw a famine in the land at this time was more theological, not just merely a setting, because under the old covenant, a famine meant they were committing idolatry. They were not keeping covenant. So that sets the stage for what's going on here. Uh, Elimelech's action seems to be more concerned with his family's physical needs more than their spiritual needs. And then we uh, saw, we talked about instead of using a trial to grow closer to the Lord, he used it to put his family in harm's way. So all this bringing... Um, Naomi and Ruth low to a position where they need a kinsman redeemer. And so the whole book is going to be about redemption, about uh, what it is for Christ to redeem us. Uh, we saw that return is used ten times in the first chapter, setting the theme for returning to the Lord and being redeemed. Thus far, Naomi has borne no fruit. Her fruit has died because they are living outside of God's will. But through redemption, she will bear eternal fruit. So once the Lord brings us into the rock, back to the right relationship with Him, that is when we begin to live. That is when we begin to bear fruit. So the typology in Ruth is just, you know, over the top. If I can use that terminology, it's just everywhere and very important, I think, to understand uh, some of the things in Ruth that we need to see. So now we, having seen the setting, where Ruth and Naomi have been brought to a helpless, destitute situation in need of a redeemer. Now we want to see how the Lord is going to save them, how the Lord is going to fulfill their needs. Since Ruth is a Gentile and Naomi a Jew, 
I think you'll see something dear to each one of us, and that's a picture of how we as Gentiles, and it sits piggyback on uh, the Jews, the covenant God made with the Jews in order to bring the Messiah, and how we get to uh, piggyback in the sense that find Christ as our Savior as well. And so in verse 6, the first step in redemption is what? Well, hearing the good news. At some point, God sends the gospel to us. And so it says there that she arose with her daughter-in-laws and returned from the country of Moab, for she heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Now what stands out there, first of all, the idea, you know, she hears the good news, you might say, but it's not the good news that, oh, it's starting to rain in Bethlehem, which probably is what has happened. That's usually what brings an end to the famine. No, she hears the truth. God has said, uh, has ended the famine. Because whatever happens, God is the one who sends it. So I kind of like that. That that's, we don't hear that too often. We always speak naturally about, well, rain and all that, which, but those are secondary causes. The only reason our gardens grow, we have food, is because God has given us food. It's not, it's not the rain. He uses the rain. He gives the rain for that purpose, but he can also withhold it, which is what happened here. So, we see here that she hears the good news. There's a way to escape the famine, but it means returning to Israel and to the God of Israel. There's life, but it's found not in the world, but in the place of the covenant. The good news was that the Lord has provided bread, not that the weather has changed. God's people understand then who is behind everything that happens. And so they return, but they return with nothing. And that's a good type because it reminds us that the gospel call is not to bring something to God. It is that God has done something for us and his faith receives from God. <clears throat> so they return to not just Bethlehem, but to return to the Lord, in a sense. Um, it kind of reminds us of the song that we sing now and then, Let not conscience, conscience make you linger, nor a fitness fondly. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. This he gives you, his spirit's right to be. So, even the faith to come to God, to trust in God, is a gift from God. And uh, so that's a, that's a great song, of course. <clears throat> Next we read that the three that three start off, Naomi and her two daughters are lost, but only two finish the journey. Which again is uh, typical of what we're talking about here, because many start, many hear something about Christ, and they're attracted for some reason or another, but they don't finish the race, right? And uh, so that's what we see with Orpah. And it's evident that Naomi's words cause Orpah to go back. I mean, it, it's interesting. Naomi tells them, go back to your people and to your gods. You know, we don't know exactly why Naomi encourages them to go back to paganism. Um, but maybe, maybe there's something there that I, I don't see. But uh, I think what we do see is that her words to go back to your people and then she says, I, you know, what are you, what are you waiting to wait for me to have children? And you're going to wait till they grow up and become men and, and marry them? So you need to go back. And so what's motivating her is that she, she says, look, the chances of you finding a husband in Bethlehem are slim to none because you're pagan women 
and really under the law that's a very that doesn't happen without certain situations so you best you're best to go back and I think that's what motivates her and so she's not just kind of being funny when she says are you going to wait for me to have children because turn to Deuteronomy 25 and we'll remind ourselves of a Liberate law that uh, speaks of all these things, but she's actually uh, being faithful to the law at that time and what they were under when it came to widows and how they were going to be provided for. Deuteronomy chapter 25, let's begin reading in verse 5. We'll read down to verse 10. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, uh, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. So, uh, Ruth and Orpah's husbands died, and instead of losing their inheritance by going and marrying uh, somebody else, the uh, Levite law said that the, their brother would bury them and uh, so they could have the inheritance and raise up children uh, in his name to receive the inheritance. And that's what Naomi's saying is, are you going to wait for me? Because I don't have any more sons. So are you going to wait for me to have more sons? And she's being very serious in a sense. The first, verse 6, the first son whom she bears shall succeed in the name of his dead brother and his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go to a gate at the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Which is going to happen, more or less, later on in Ruth. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, which in a sense is not, is, I'm not going to, do my duty before the Lord in this matter. Uh, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull off his sandal, sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. But the inheritance, the land inheritance, was a big part of the old covenant with Israel. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. So it was in a sense a disgrace not to marry your brother's widow uh, if, if you had the opportunity to. And so that's what's going on here and it help us to understand that. And we kind of see a little bit of this in Matthew 22 and the Sanhedrin for nefarious reasons. Ask the Lord, now there were seven brothers among us. The first, the first married and died having no offspring left to his wife, to his brother. And said, you know, each, you know, each brother married her then Finally, there was no brother left to marry her. They all died, and that's what's going on here. They're, they're basing it off this law. And so the reasons for this law and her words accentuate their hopeless condition. That This is why Naomi says uh, it's best to go back. Of course, the problem is you're, you're sending them back to paganism, but you know, so this is what's going on here. There was little chance of Jewish men marrying them unless there were extenuating circumstances. Basically, Orpah went back to get married again. That's why she left. But the interesting thing is that Ruth is saying, I would rather be in Israel with you and in, in, in relationship with your God, as we'll see here, than if, if it means I never marry. 
And of course, in our situation, there's no chance for us to find life and fruitfulness unless someone has mercy upon us, just like Boaz is going to have mercy upon Ruth. So one day the Lord, in our unfruitfulness, came to us and gave us life and, and redeemed us. And that's what we're seeing here. And so the beauty of all this is, in this law is not just to help the plight of widows, which obviously it is, but to teach us about what we have in Christ. That's, that's really, I think, the whole purpose of the book of Ruth and the laws of redemption in Israel. But more than this is the, is the fact that we see, I think here, Ruth's conversion, or at least proof of her conversion. Naomi's words are pretty much the same as Jesus when he tells us to count the cost. So Jesus was not someone who said, look, just trust in me and everything's okay. You know, he didn't make it easy on anybody. He says, no, I want you to understand what it means to come to me, to you trust in me as Lord and Savior. Your life changes. This is not an easy thing. And we, so we see, I think, Naomi showing that. You know, Jesus told the rich young ruler, go sell all. You know, and then follow me. And we know that the rich young ruler uh, wasn't ready to do that. But it's always been the call of the gospel. So if we don't add Christ to our life, we exchange our life for his. So if you're sitting there today thinking that of something that you, I, I will never give this up, no matter what, then uh, it, it, it shows you that your heart has not been transformed. You're not a believer. You love something more than Christ. And, and, and so you, that's something you need to be, look into be careful. You're an orphan, not a root. Now, it's not my job to determine whether your faith is real. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. But it's very important that we make our calling and election sure that we pass the test in 2 Corinthians. The last chapter of 2 Corinthians, I believe, talks about uh, because there are conditions to the gospel. Obviously, we are saved by faith and not works, but faith without works is dead, as James says, right? And so one work is that Christ is my life. He's my Lord and Savior. I have forsaken all. Do I do that perfectly? Do I live that out as I should now? No, but I understand that's the truth, and in my heart that is true. So there are only two options ever found in the Bible. Follow Christ and go back to the world. There are no houses built on the border of Satan's kingdom and Christ. So verse 15, notice how it is, she says, the gods of Moab versus the god of Naomi. See, your sister-in-law has gone back, not just to her people, but to her gods. So return after your sister-in-law. Then Ruth says, no, I, I'm going to commit myself not only to you, but to your God as well. That makes it clear that this is not about Ruth's love just for Naomi, but it is proof that she is be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So he understood that, that Ruth, in, in coming to uh, Bethlehem, is taking refuge under the uh, protection of Yahweh, not just the Lord. So, in verse 6, 
king did of chapter 1. We come to the famous words of Commitment, which says, to be a common passage for a but she told me this was uh, what she quoted and uh, then all of a sudden you know people criticize this because well Ruth is not speaking them to Boaz in, in a marriage context but to her mother-in-law so well, we shouldn't use them a marriage context and I think that there's probably more behind that. Kind of like you, you don't often hear uh, the word faith uh, in the marriage vows because it doesn't matter what the Bible says about obeying your husband. Uh, I'm not going to do that. It doesn't matter what the Bible says. It. I'm not going to use those words. I'm not or whatever. And I understand this is not in the marriage context, but I think I have a the reason that people shy away from this today is because it doesn't sound good to our modern ears for a woman to commit herself to her husband and to say these things. No matter what the Bible says, no matter what biblical marriage is, we don't want to sound old-fashioned or like that. And that's bad. I take exception to the fact that, that this shouldn't be used in a marriage context because First of all, our marriage is to reflect and illustrate our reunion to Christ. That Ephesians five makes that all too clear. And there is very there, the, 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 the words here fit very well with what marriage is. So I don't have a problem using this in a uh, in, in vow to express your vows in marriage. If the context of Ruth is her union with her kinsman redeemer, which is going to be her husband Boaz, and this is her commitment to the Lord, not just to Naomi, but obviously the Lord, and submitting to his ways, then I think we can make a case that it does illustrate very well our commitment in marriage as well, like commitment to her husband and in it wasn't vice versa. But if you still think about it, where um, where you go, I will go. No, husband, the wife is to leave her family and leave to her husband, right? To start a new family union. Um, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Where you live and live together, right? Where your husband moves is where you move. It's not necessarily where your wife's job takes you, but where your husband's job takes you. And I know, uh, you know, you call me the contradiction of whatever you want to, but I think we have a hard time in a Muslim Bible. Your people shall be my people. You can begin a new family. It doesn't mean you don't have your old family anymore, but we understand how that works in marriage. But your God will be my God. Now, if you're you're marrying somebody whose God is not the God of the Bible, now you've got a whole other problem. But if you do believe in the God of the Bible, then yes, you're, you're, we are doing this before God. If, uh, I'm not... I don't believe in God because you do, obviously, but there's a commitment here to the Lord as well. Where you die, I will die, and there I'll be buried. Marriage is to be until death. I don't, you know, I don't see I can get away with the fact that that is fitting for the marriage vows. I'm not saying you have to use it for death, but to, to write it off as well, it's not 
marriage context there, so they don't have to use it. I think it's maybe overreaction. Anyway, so Naomi has just admitted that being a child of the covenant has not always been easy. It's been very difficult for her, and yet Ruth wants to commit to this anyway. She's seen what it's done with Naomi, but she says, you know, that's what I want. That's what I need. Because the commitment to Christ is not going to bring peace. So we commit to Christ no matter what comes. And Christ has told us count the cost because life will not always be easy because he doesn't call us to have lives of ease. Ease comes later. Find a person in Hebrews 11 whose faith is pointed to by how faithful they were because everything was easy for them. But she won't find it. Because there's no hard choices to make. And, and of course, no, the, the, the faith stands out that we are faithful to the Lord in spite of the suffering. So what are we to make of churches that try to attract the world by telling them how wonderful things will be if you come to Christ? Christians just don't have a testimony without suffering to tell denying self-proving in one way or another the price of your life. Even if it means a form of separation with friends and family or certain activities or whatever, we say no. And, and that, that can be a very effective So all Christians don't suffer equally, but all who follow Christ must die daily and withstand temptation, evil influence, and identify with Christ and not with those so, Ruth is not put off by the fact that Naomi's life as a Jew under the covenant is not that easy. So, this confession also depicts how one comes to Christ. We see here a couple of things. First, she knows that there is no other place to go. All three of these women have no lasting proof in their former relationship, they're barren. And so the, the, the idea is, is Orpah, if she goes back and she gets married, is she uh, better off in the fruit that she's going to bear with that marriage? Then Ruth, if she goes and she never gets married, but she has the true God. Of course, the answer is, go with Ruth. That's where true fruitfulness comes to going Christ. Next, she commits herself to complete obedience. Whatever... Naomi and Naomi's God are, that's where I will be. Goes back to the exchange of lives I mentioned earlier. There's, there's also an exchange of people. There's an exchange, you know, I live differently, a different world. Those who love Christ want to be around other people who love Christ, not around those who care nothing about them. And if you're, if you're at ease around people that don't love the Lord, then, you know, what's wrong? It doesn't mean Friends and so forth, it doesn't mean you can't be around lost people, but if you're at ease, if you are comfortable, especially more comfortable than with God's people, then I would say something's not right there. Um, so these words clearly speak of a complete break in the way she lived before. That's, that's what it means to have a new God, right? And then finally we see the permanence of, of, uh, this just as in marriage, when you commit to Christ, it's a permanent thing. This is really the only thing we can expect. If God is true and everything he says about life is true, everything he says about the world, about
about eternity is true, then there's never going to be a time in which living for the here and now sends the Christian. Because no, God's word is true. God has given me light. I understand what's going on. But it, it never is going to be untruthful. Right. in which I've left that gods of, of in that land to we talked about you know, the gods was seen as tribal and certain areas. So it's very well fitting that. And and I think those some she obviously probably at some point maybe overcomes and understands it's not the truth that, that Yahweh's a God of the whole earth, but yeah, it's consider at least, right? Um so Luke Ruth's language sounds a lot like covenant language. One sense too. Again, why I think it can apply beyond just her immediate situation. In Exodus six seven, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So you see this idea of of commitment and change. We'll find out that part of doing the duty of a kinsman redeemer is adhering to the laws given by God. We've kind of already saw that in Deuteronomy a little bit. It isn't something he does that is Boaz does just on his own, not just because he, of any love he might have for Ruth. As, as we saw in Deuteronomy, there was a sense of duty here, which again I think helps illustrate what Christ did in saving us. It wasn't just that he saw something in us that was savable. In fact, there's nothing in us that deserves salvation, but it was his love for the Father. Uh, and, and it's not that he didn't love us, of course, but his primary uh, motivation in, in saving us is that in his commitment to the Father, his love for the Father, that there's uh, a very, you know, there's an obligation here to do that. What's about something seen in us? Something you see in the New Testament is his commitment to the Father that gets him to the cross. Redemptive language is full of legal language. We've read in Deuteronomy. And not on our part, but on the part of God, God's part. Their nature governs all that they do for us. In other words, the, the, the God isn't enthralled with mankind and, and driven to, to do something for us. God created us for His glory. Which, and in loving us, setting His love upon us, even sinners, everything He does for us is good for us. So it's not like it's not he doesn't care what happens to us. No, he, his love is demonstrated in, in how he brings us into fellowship with himself, but the motivation is always to glorify himself. So the Father can never leave or forsake us because his commitment is wrapped up in his love for the Son and vice versa. 
Now, I'm not going to belabor the point now, but it's clear that this is done very ter- carefully. Uh, and, and we're going to see in Ruth as well, there are, uh, this isn't just something that, well, you know, here's a beautiful woman, and I happen to be related to her, or at least to her husband, and, husband, and so I'm going to do this. No, this is uh, something that was done for, with legal representation. God saves us in a way that enforces commitment and permanence. We cannot wait and walk away on our own because this is something that God has done. He has created the world for this very purpose. And in fact, there's, I think there's another reason why this is such a good vow for a woman. Is she ready to marry if she isn't willing to leave her family and give herself to it? And it isn't just one side. Christ committed himself to us forever doing so by the ultimate sacrifice, so we as husbands, of course, commit ourselves to our wives in the same way, forever. This is what burns me up uh, with easy belief is that we see today so often. They, they either make little of our commitment to Christ, or even worse, they make little of Christ's commitment to people by suggesting that people just let us walk off. Of course, the idea is that we have on our own free will to believe in Jesus and Jesus is okay if we decide, eh, you know what, I'm tired of that, I'm going to walk away. That Jesus says, well, okay, nothing I can do about it. No, he's about to dip it. It's the Lord's power. One of the great things about the biblical doctrine of elective love is that the God has committed himself to us from the very beginning in eternity. And pretty much that's what Ruth says. God makes an oath to keep us and not lose us. And if anything ever separates us, he's more or less willing to say, I will be cursed. As Hebrew says, with an oath, God has committed himself to save us. All that the Father has given me, I will lose none. And, and if God, not Jesus cannot go back on his word. You don't have time to Verses Romans 8, 9, 5, 22, 23. This idea of commitment, of love never loses, uh, this relationship of love and God. So Ruth calls for a curse on her, even if she, if she ever leaves. And then Naomi believes her faith is real. Uh, so, by the way, this shows, I, I like the commitment here that Ruth has to Naomi and Naomi for Ruth, because it shows what in-law relationships should be. Side. Ruth is happy to live with Naomi. Naomi didn't treat her like, well, not quite the same. But they, they, they had a good relationship. And that's what Ruth tried to do. Especially with everybody saying that we have been long problems. Let's move on. This is what the New Testament though, tells us that those who face the doors to the end will be. The point isn't that. True believers can not endure to the end, can follow them. But saving faith looks like this. It's it the last, the very end. And when we remember that saving faith is empowered by the Lord to begin with, this is just law that He enables me in that song. He, he gives us that faith. So its continuation then isn't up to us, it's up to the Lord. He's the one who gave it to us to start with. And that's consistent theology. 
And then in verse 19, the final scene is in they get to Bethlehem, but still remember that there's still a need of redemption. They're still destitute. Uh, and so this but this brings us up to the point now where something's got to be taken care of. That, that, that's got to be, that needs got to be fulfilled. So this is still a story of redemptive love, which Satan set for us. And Naomi is, we see her as kind of like Israel having broken covenant. She's come under the Lord's judgment. Ruth is a Gentile. She's already under God's judgment. Strangers to the covenant. But there is a near kinsman redeemer. Someone who uh, is able to take care of the problem. next week. But Naomi admits that she has been put through the ringer. Don't call me Naomi anymore. The Lord has dealt harshly with me. Again, this isn't necessarily to be bitterness. Back this is the situation that I'm in. The Lord is about change What's good for us to remember is that this is how the Lord grows our love and expectation. This chapter has brought them very low, but now they are ready to appreciate God and to lay hold of Him because they realize that, that without Him they have nothing. And until someone is brought to that point, they'll never anyway. Someone said, I thought this was pretty good. Sitting comfortably on the beach is very sweet after a stormy voyage, but I fancy you will find it more difficult to walk closely with Jesus in a calm than in a storm, in easy circumstances than in difficult ones. A Christian never falls asleep in the fire or in the flood, but he grows drowsy in the sunshine. And I think if we think about it, we all can relate to that. We all know that the dreams are easy, routine, Many comfortable need. We lose the sense of our need of Christ and of the Word and of Christian fellowship and the power of God. But nothing causes us to pray and to seek the Lord like trouble. For one of those people who are interviewed after some disaster, they ask them, Angry at God, what do you say? Well, the world. I don't even believe in God, but how many times we see people get angry at God because He allows the disaster to life? But we as Christians who know better, who have given the light of God's word, to say, I am not bitter. I have no regrets of the way God has dealt with me. What I do regret is my sin, not what the Lord did in my life. I, I can see even in bitter circumstances a part of His transforming kindness to me is in what He is doing in me. Transform. So if people don't see a growing love for Christ in us in all circumstances, then uh, it's not the Lord's work. The fruit of Naomi is summed up in one word that is root. And when there's something here, and I'll close with this, her part in all this is Get rough roots of Boaz. <laughs> you need to kind of remember this is all about Ruth and Boaz. So say the Ruth, I guess. And Naomi's part in all this was basically to have a child who married Ruth, get her to meet Boaz. She's secondary in all this. And sometimes we got to remember that life is not really about being taught, but it's about the Lord. And life, you know, the Lord, His purpose for you in raising you up. Might not be to, for you to make a name for yourself to have a comfortable 
life. It might be just so that you can have a child to train, and that child have a, a great ministry, great things are very important things. And you might not. Now, everything we do, if it's for the Lord, is important and we will be rewarded for it. So don't take that the wrong way. But we've got to remember sometimes that, that I'm just part of, you know, I've been raised up on God's while to do my part, and then I pass away. Now I go to heaven. And someone used a uh, Acts 7.58, and I had to think about this thing this through. I'm not sure if it's the best example, but it, I think if you think about it, it's interesting. <coughs> Where it says, Then they cast him out of the city, that Stephen and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And the man said, Suffering and death of Stephen has an explanation, and that is Saul part of And this is all about Saul. I thought, well, Stephen, has, you know, he the, his martyrdom is recording God's word, and clearly, as a martyr, he is receiving the heaven given great reward. So it's not like Stephen is unimportant. But their point was that it, it lay in the code that, that Paul, who was Saul at that time, saw this, he witnessed this, it perhaps had a profound effect upon him, so that Stephen died and was martyred just as part of getting Paul to where he should be, because Paul's ministry far exceeds, right? And so I think if you think about it that way, it's not to Stephen will have, you know, a great reward in heaven, already has, and, and rightly so. But he, I guess the, guy, the guy's point was, this is, is the explanation of why Stephen was marked with Paul. But that's the best way to put it. What he's saying is that this was really about Paul because Paul is the one who was profoundly affected perhaps from this. So at least whether that's the best example or not, again, if 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 I can raise three children and teach them with the help of my wife and, and the Lord saves them and and his, well, my son, who's an elder now, but my daughters who are faithful to the Lord and raising their children properly. Then, if I don't ever amount to a hell of being outside of that, I've done something for the Lord that the Lord who knows what the Lord will do. And we've got to kind of keep that mentality. And it's not that say the Lord can't do great things to all of us. The story of Naomi and the story of Ruth, and, and it, therefore it's really the story of God. I mean, that's what's got to be uh, One reason why we can never say the simple equation in our lives. Well, Naomi said, therefore she's suffering. Well, there's so much more. God is doing so much more than that. You've got to be very careful about trying to oversimplify.
saying that it's true, I agree. And yes, and in a sense, the Lord did those things, but I thought because of idolatry and sin that a lot of that happened. So, yeah, the Lord just basically let said to see we talked about this actually. The Lord said, if you don't do these things, you so yes, it's the one sense you can say the Lord did it, but in another sense you did it for yourself. You know, God's just doing what He promised He was going to do. But, so yeah, but you always be careful with the Old Testament version and there to pass The Bible isn't necessarily condoning these things, it's relating them. You've got to be able to do But we try to point that out, uh, you know, time to time as well. Yes, good point. So anyway, let's finish with this. Um, during your life in Moab, God is the one who is plowing to have a purpose in all this. It wasn't about a little but part of this is about getting through to Moab, obviously. And so let's just close by quoting, probably you've heard it before, Winston Booker, who, a great song reader, songwriter back in the day, uh, said this, God moves in mysterious ways, in a mysterious way, his wondrous form. He plants footsteps in the sea and rise upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his right design and works his sovereign will. But it's mysterious to us. So don't let that grow. Be fearful faith and fresh courage take the clouds you seek be so much dread are big with mercy and shall break with blessing. Does not the Lord by people sit but trust in more Kind of proud His purposes go right to the back, only every hour. The blood may have a bitter taste. Why does the leaf stir the air? And the work of now. God is the stone in If my if purposes might not always be appropriate in that, is that really something that that? If will be appropriate in that, if will they be instead of my that's God's will. For your word and for all the deep riches of it, Lord, please so wise meditate upon it, think about it, like this Thank you.